Welcome to the Jerry T Podcast. I am Jerry Thompson and I'm joined by Dave Shields. We just got back from Columbus where we played some modern and Dave ended up making, can I say top eight? Is that okay? It's so confusing to say top 12. I still don't really understand it. Yeah. If I say something like top 12, it kind of sounds like copium, like, oh, I lost playing for top eight sort of thing, you know? Yeah, but but that was the actual cut for the event, and I don't want to sound like a Yu-Gi-Oh player and say top cut. Yeah, or the elimination rounds. Yeah, which also sounds kind of weird. So top eight is also definitely technically wrong. So whatever, you made the elimination rounds playing Indomitable Creativity, and overall, I mean, like the tournament was kind of weird, had some ups and downs, but it did feel like you had. Uh, a pretty commanding performance with the archetype overall. It seemed really good. Yeah, I felt really good about it. I won a bunch of really close matches. I absolutely crushed a few rounds. I feel like I left quite a bit on the table still, and that's stuff that we can get into, but it both confidence building and humbling experience. Hell yeah. I mean, those are kind of the weekends we like, right? Because it makes us want to go back to the next one. Yeah. And obviously, you've heard this from me quite a bit just over the last 48 hours, but there was quite a few rounds, despite how much I've played this deck, that I feel like I left quite a bit on the table that I want back, and I can't wait to have another crack at it. Yeah, exactly. And to be fair, I think a lot of that is probably my fault, where I may have brainwormed you in an ornament amount, where your list was very different than the ones that you normally play and i doubt that you would have gotten to the list that you did without my interference let's call it (laughs) i don't disagree but i do think you pushed me pushed me in a reasonably positive direction and while i might have over indexed slightly it is not super far off from uh versions of the deck that i have played six ish months ago and i do think that it pushed me in a direction to that i actually want to be in maybe just not quite as far fair okay so First, we will talk about my weekend because it is uh, pretty short and sweet, honestly. And then we'll get to the meat of it, which is focusing on Dave and his creativity list and creativity just going forward in modern in general. So for the Saturday tournament, it was a 20K two-day modern event. I registered, is it Merktide? I don't know. You, your your phrase of over-indexing is probably just a thing that I'm going to start saying a lot. So I, I definitely over-indexed for like the the winner's metagame, basically. And I've even talked about going into these sort of open field tournaments before where it is not a good idea to do that very specifically. And yet I did it and was, was kind of punished by uh, a few different ways, like both in the specific card choices that I made and with also like the deck that I registered, I think. And so I, I quickly went one and two. I'm technically still live for day two and, you know, top whatever, whatever's, but dropped instead and was very happy with that decision. And then for Sunday, there was a 5K and I audible to creativity partially based on how well you did on day one, but also just the look of the field in general with it having like a lot of random stuff going on and creativity just being kind of good against those things. And when I played four color Omnath in North Carolina, I 
sort of noted after that event that maybe creativity is just like a better version of Omnath and kind of decided that creativity was maybe just not that good and therefore Omnath was not that good right now. But for this event specifically, it seemed like this sort of like interaction plus go big thing was actually quite good. And in theory, I could have played Omnath, but I still thought that creativity was likely a much better choice. Yeah, and I think all that lines up with my experiences. I think that creativity is really good against the random soupness of modern, and the more spread out the metagame is, probably the better. And then I think that against some of the top tier decks, you can pick and choose which ones you want to beat, but they all require a pretty healthy amount of sideboard slots, and you kind of have to pick and choose your battles of which ones you want to beat on any given weekend. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that too. And my Sunday tournament went solid. I, I would say that overall, I was pretty pleased with the archetype choice, but maybe not the specifics and maybe not the, I don't know, specific way like I went about things where I almost certainly threw away round three. And then there were definitely things I could have done better at round five, which may or may not have impacted whether or not I won or lost or whatever, but uh, also some of the specific card choices I made that differed from yours. I think some were good and some were pretty bad, but I was also just kind of like trying to try stuff. So uh, my tournament ended up me being four and two, and then I dropped, which, you know, you gave me a little bit of crap for dropping on Sunday but this was one of the instances where I actually wanted to stay in and I was forced to drop because of you, which was a little bit of irony that you didn't notice until I pointed it out. I will give you a pass on this one. And for whatever it's worth, we had a flight to catch and we did explore moving our flights to a later time to stay and hang out just because we were having a blast and you were still live for the tournament. And Unfortunately, there were no clean ways to move our flight and not get max punished for that. So we chose to dip for the airport. But yeah, yeah. And, and you lost in the first round of the elimination rounds, which meant that we had basically exactly enough time to leave and catch our flight. Whereas I think if you had just won one more round, we would have been staying. Yeah. So it was my fault for more than one reason. Yep. I'll and accept all the blame here. And then I thought about it afterwards where basically changing our flight was going to cost a minimum of $75. And I was like, Oh wait, I, I just kind of like forgot that there was like prize money in this thing where I was four and two and I was feeling pretty good and felt like I shaken off a lot of the rust and whatnot and was like pretty, pretty awake and like in good spirits at this point too. And so I, I felt like I had a pretty good shot shot to end up six and two and like top 16 and get 100 bucks but i just wasn't even thinking about that at the time and like that would have just paid for the flight change so in hindsight what i would do differently is just kind of argue from that aspect of things where it's like no like we should we should just stay the extra night yeah and i would have loved to it being a holiday on the following monday made thing made staying a lot easier for me as well so yeah staying for the hangs would have definitely been something i would have been open to yeah and we didn't I don't know when we booked initially Labor Day did not factor into things. It did not even come up as like, Oh, this is a thing that is happening. So you didn't realize that you had off on Monday and that, I don't know, like you booked a flight out Sunday afternoon. I was like, what happens if you, you know, make top eight or whatever. And you're just like, eh, you know, cross that bridge when I get there. Right. But yeah, 
I was like, yeah, whatever, let's do this, let's try it. And technically it did end up working out, but I, I really don't want to do that again <laughs> necessarily because I don't know. I, I feel like we'd just be better off if we could just stay and do the Saturday stuff and not have to think about the outside stuff that is going on where it's like in between rounds we have to kind of like scramble to figure out what we're going to do with regards to our flight and stuff. So, yeah, I think going forward, like if there's flights available later in the day on Sunday, those are obviously great options to, for me, at least to get back home to the family one night earlier, but having a night to wind down and hang out and not have something that we're working towards or thinking towards is uh, really appealing as well. Yeah. I mean, if, if you get like an 8 PM flight or, you know, 10 PM or something, something that's direct, ideally, like that would be great. But like leaving at 6 PM is just so risky on so many metrics, man. I don't know. Yep. I think you're totally right. And we experienced that. Yeah. Cause I, I played a tournament that started at 9 AM and I got to play, you know, 75% of it, I guess, before I definitely had to leave. So it was probably not worth it, but yeah. Uh, for whatever overall, it's worth, that morning I committed to you that if you were still live for top eight in the event, I would stay with you. Yeah, that's fair. And then you made top eight yourself, so you get seven hundred bucks. So you know you're not really. I mean, you wouldn't really be sweating the like seventy five dollar flight change anyway. But in this instance, it's all it's all you know play money. So what wasn't clear was is there even a flight to switch to, right? Even past the financial cost. No, that's true. That's true. I and for yeah, traveling on Labor Day or whatever, who knows? But the flight options that did exist were not great. They're all leaving at like, you know, six, seven, eight AM or whatever. So Yeah, and not directs. So yes. Not appealing. I mean, to be fair, we didn't have directs anyway. So I, yeah. I wouldn't have expected that. But on my flight back, I did have uh an upgrade to first class too. So there was that. You were asking me about, hey, can we <laughs> we had the, we had the same connection at the same layover city and we were Jerry goes to move his seat next to me and lo and behold he's in first class. So that didn't actually work out. Yeah, so I was like, ah, you know, I'll, I get plenty of time to talk to David. It's fine. I'll just take my first <laughs> class seat. He can sit back with the peasants yeah. and it'll be great. But yeah, dude, tell me just about your event, basically start to finish. So let's start with the brainworming that you did to me earlier in the week. I tried, I tried a lot of stuff. You tried a lot of different things and you sent me a lot of different lists. I'll say most of them I thought were pretty bad. You did send me one that was pretty appealing with a like hypothetical, you think you might be onto something that was a straight red black version that leaned really hard into full four persist and obviously doesn't have ley line binding, doesn't have red in six, but it was a very lean version and had thought season it. So and this this is kind of funny to me. I, I know all the things that you're going to say and they're all valid points, but the thing that I want to point out first of all is like I finally send you a lean straightforward kind of well-tuned looking deck list and your inclination is to like let's add some more colors and like dirty this up i didn't jump to that conclusion right away okay i played okay. some games first all right and Continue. you you so i played some games with it i played a few leagues with it i really liked i'll say a few things like i think thought season the deck lined up really well and this is stuff we'll get to more of like the sequence of like Turn one, fetch a triome. Turn two, fetch a second triome and play a one mana interactive spell is like exactly where I want to be every time. And while I we miss leyline binding quite a bit in this circumstance, having thought seize for that is pretty appealing. And I really like how that lined up. I also really liked, and this did come up for me more than once, of being able to play turn one thought seize myself, put Archon into the graveyard, turn two persist it is like 
pretty freaking powerful. I was literally never able to do that. Yeah. I did it twice in the leagues. One of the times it was it got force of negation, so that didn't feel great. <laughs> Oops. But it is an, an on zero amount of times that it comes up, right? And I think stuff that we'll get into more with some of the persist shenanigans is like that's the card that I kind of honed into the most through some of these things. And it's not actually a card that I think ever really lines up super well as part of your plan A game plan, but there's just so many broken games in modern. And it's a really scrappy card that does a lot of, it, it ends up coming up and being utilized in a lot of different ways that are never part of the primary game plan. And that it, it has a really high power level. The ability to do something for only two mana that brings back an Archon, not having to commit your whole turn to doing something was super appealing to me. So the red black list is where I started. And then I started adding Ren and Six back because we missed the card advantage and the discard outlets and the likes. And then eventually couldn't get myself away. I, I missed Leyline Binding way too much. But I do think one of the things you and I agreed on pretty much from the start and where we built most of these lists from was that Teferi is just like not a very good card right now in creativity. Yeah, which is kind of weird because it's it's been a staple for so long. And I think that it it sort of just got that staple status once people decided this was just going to be like a good stuff deck that killed with creativity and Teferi is just one of the good stuff cards. But the more that we were approaching specific matchups and specifically thinking about Teferi's role against Cascade and how the Cascade decks are all built with like four force negations in the case of Rhinos, they have mystical dispute and stuff. It's just like, when do you actually have time to cast Teferi against them when this is supposed to be one of your best cards against them? If it's not good there, then where is it? Exactly. And this was, I think this hypothesis started back at the team event that we played six or seven weeks ago, where I was not super high on Teferi going into the event, but wasn't quite ready to make a bold, a bold decision like that. And then in the tournament, I was playing against Rhinos and I found myself shaving copies of it against Rhinos, specifically because Mystical Dispute, Force of Negation, Subtlety are all ways they can interact with it. And my interaction to counter their Rhinos are a combination of spell pierces and silences. And I can't afford to tap my white and my blue mana at the same time on my own main phase. It just, it was a recipe for disaster. To be so, fair, you, di you didn't have silence then in the team. Sure, did not have but, silence, but I did have reprieve. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Your interactive spells are the same colors. So like the, the odds of you being able to like, th they have a lot of ways to fight it. And don't get me wrong. If you resolve one against them, it's like really strong, but that just doesn't happen a lot. And I found, I, we I found other ways I thought to attack that matchup more effectively that I, I think lined up well. So w once we kind of got here, that freed up quite a few slots in the deck of like, all right, we're, we're not going to play Teferi. What, what else can we be doing instead? And it, get, it gives you a lot of slots to play around with and go in different directions. Well, I mean, it also does interesting things where it's the only blue and white card in the deck. So it's like, oh, well, maybe, you know, we, we don't have to be as reliant on like fetching those colors early like can we shave one of those to a minimum or whatever and also the big thing for me was like opening up mana in the three drop slot because before you were just locked in on four fables and like three to four teferis and there's a lot of good three mana cards that are worth playing too yeah quite a few and i think the 
feedback that you shared with me that I also experienced playing some of like the red black versions. And I even tried a, a Jun variant were that the card advantage was just missing when things didn't go according to plan. You didn't have enough good ways to recoup card advantage. And it might not seem that way on the surface, but like Ren and Sex is like a really critical piece for that, given how many discard outlets you have for like generating card advantage. So moving back in that direction and then kind of leaning into this persist graveyard theme is kind of where I spent the week and the list I ended up on moved pretty heavily in that direction. Yeah, and I, I guess specifically it's not even like, oh, I want, you know, like card advantage type stuff as if like card advantage is important. It's just like I just want pieces of cardboard that I can discard to Bitter Reunion or Prismari Command because, you know, maybe the hand that I am sculpting already has like a lot of integral pieces, you know, and I don't necessarily want to loot away like a lightning bolt or my fourth land or a creativity or whatever. And the red black deck definitely suffered as a result of that. Whereas Renin six, when you have that active, it fuels like all your fables, all your bitter reunions. Just it, you know, does whatever you want. So we ended up on the list I ended up playing had two bitter reunions, two persist, or sorry, three bitter reunion, two persist, and two prismari command. Yep. And also two shadow prophecy in the three drop slot. But like you would, did you play two in the team event also? Yeah. I've been on two shadow prophecy for quite a while. And this is like the one of the cards that I play that pretty much nobody else does but the reason i really like it and find it so important is like in these one having like a two for one type spell especially in the post board games when you get more removal i find to be really important so that like i think the two options there are shadow prophecy and expressive iteration and i've really liked the prophecy even ignoring the like putting archons in your graveyard for persist but mostly just because it's an instant and like holding up counter spells interaction and playing on your opponent's end step against things like Merktide or rhinos i find to be really important yeah and i i definitely agree with all that stuff i think that if i ever play this deck the one shadow prophecy is almost certainly just locked in in the main deck and then the second copy i've had issues with uh where it's just like well maybe you draw both or maybe you just draw it uh a higher <clears throat> percentage of the time in matchups where you're just getting beaten down and like your life total actually matters and uh, again like the the mana base itself can be sort of painful at times right so i think that i would prefer to like start one and then sideboard the second copy and then find ways to do similar things that that don't cost you life maybe but in in certain matchups it is probably your best actual card that you could theoretically have yeah, and I think a lot of those matchups where it's at its best are also the matchups where Teferi plays. So I, I think yes. those things kind of line up well. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. So I start the event playing this five-color list. Round one, I get paired against Scam. I keep a solid seven-card hand on the draw. My opponent scams me on turn one with a grief, takes two of my spells and leaves me with Bitter Reunion and Four Land. I cast Bitter Reunion on turn two. He bowmasters me in response, and I die on turn three. That rules. It was it was demoralizing. Game two, so I die on turn three in like about two minutes. Game two, I keep another seven card hand, three spells, four land, get griefed again. Don't cast a single spell. <laughs> so I finish my first round in about five minutes. Everybody else is still playing in the tournament. I cast exactly one spell, and it was a Bitter Reunion. 
I made, like it was, I went for a walk and got a coffee and kind of just questioned my life decisions that got me here. Which is understandable given that, you know, it's like that not only did that happen, but it's like, this is the deck that you expected to play against. And like, <laughs> and I thought that I had like, you know, moved things in a relatively positive direction for, and like, I didn't even like ever have a chance. So that happened. I had like an hour plus wait before the next round started. That first round went quite long and round two got paired against scam and got my revenge because man, did I beat the crap out of my round two scam opponent. So that me- that felt good. That made me feel like, you know, I had some momentum. Maybe I was on to something and um, rattled quite a few off after that. I played against a huge range of decks, basically one of everything all the way through one, I think six in a row and then six and one going into the last round and i'm like absolutely exhausted and i played a really long three game match against hammer and definitely feel like i lost i left one on the table my opponent just felt like i felt like my opponent was one step ahead of me the whole time um which is not a fun feeling but definitely one that i would love to have back and wish i could you know rewatch. so then I don't know. Like, obviously, finishing the day with a loss is the worst possible thing, right? It's just like you're doing well on day one. Like, yeah, you did lock up day two or whatever, but that always feels bad. And then, you know, say you're like playing for cash at a GP or whatever, and you lose in the last round. Maybe you still even min cash or whatever, but it still just always feels bad. And certainly to lose like that it's not even it's not a bad thing like you and i personally enjoy when that happens like it is the fun stuff for us it is what keeps us engaged with magic and thinking about it and it keeps us wanting to come back and stuff but like (laughs) that match was just living in your head ran free for the entirety of the night and you brought it up like every 30 minutes just at some point it it became kind of memey you know but uh, it was clear that it was it was still there in, in your head for sure. Yeah, I, there was a ton of really interesting decisions. It was a really, really close match. Even the game that I won, I easily could have lost. I feel like I could have won both the games that I did lose. And again, obviously, like incredibly frustrating. And I, I think you're spot on that it lived rent-free in my head for the entirety of the night. But it it really was energy-inducing for me, right? It made me like I couldn't wait to come back and play the next day. Yeah, those are the matches that keep me coming back. So I'm looking at your matchup spread, actually, and you played uh, double scam rounds one and two and then double hammer round seven and eight. Yep. And then everything in between was different. I don't know. One of these decks is labeled four color combo. What the hell does that mean? Oh, creativity. No, maybe? Samwise. Oh, yeah. I, I, I remember those. watching this for like a turn and just being like, I, I don't know any of these cards. I'm walking away. Yeah. A creature combo deck against my plethora of one-man interaction and Archons is not exactly a good place to be. Fair. Uh, What did you play against round one of day two? Because that one is missing. Round one of day two, I played against Amulet. Okay. So Amulet, then Yawgmoth, Gruul Scapeshift, Yawgmoth, ID with Amulet. So I played against three different creature combo decks, which I think is like probably a good place to be when you're playing creativity, especially with the bindings. Yeah, and then in theory, the Prismari command should help in the hammer matchup. I guess the thing that doesn't really look great is all these copies of Shadow Prophecy, potentially, because not not even necessarily because these decks are kind of like 
you know, chip shotting you, but also the games are just over pretty quickly, I would imagine. Yeah, the, the games are fast. I'll say like, uh, especially like even against things like Hammer, actually like the prophecies like more than you might th- think because you really want to hold mana up, right? So playing yeah. the game on your opponent's turn and then like if they don't do anything too threatening, being able to like actually still use your mana, I think is like pretty important. Yeah, and then make sure that you just end up with enough things that you don't die to like a surge of salvation or blacksmith skill or spell pierce or whatever it is they have. Yeah, like against all like Yogmoth, Samwise combo and Hammer, these are all decks where like I certainly don't want to be tapping out for sorceries on my own turn. Yeah, I guess <laughs> that is the big distinction to make is that maybe Prophecy is not ideal in some of these games, but Teferi certainly is very bad. Yes, and I think especially post-board against these decks when, like, the games get a little bit grindier and you get a little bit more removal, that, like, things like Expressive Iteration and Shadow Prophecy, this is where they really shine. Yeah, so you had a nice little 6-0 heater on day one and then a 4-0 mini heater on day two to just get get to be able to ID in the last round. Yeah, the last round was, like, reasonably interesting spot with these top 12 events where... It looked like if I played and won, I was definitely going to be in the top four and get a buy. And if I played and lost, it looked more likely than not I was going to be somewhere around 11th, 12th, or 13th. So I think like mathematically maximizing my equity, like drawing versus playing, playing might have been slightly better, but it put a, there was a non-zero chance I finished 13th with a loss. Yeah, looking at the standings now, and this is assuming that nothing changes, although if you lose instead of get a draw, presumably your opponent's uh, match one percentage goes up a tad, right? Yeah. But it looks like if you had lost, you would still be in 12th. Yeah, I would have finished exactly 12th. And then you would have been third if you won. Yep. And the person who did end up finishing third slash fourth, I think, had the same record as me. But given that I lost round one of the tournament, my breakers were pretty bad to begin with. And looking at the standings quick, looked like there was a non-zero amount of risk. I took the draw relatively quickly. And in retrospect, kind of, you know, obviously easy to say now, but w- wish I spent a little bit more time looking at it. But I spent enough knowing that, hey, 13th was definitely like on the table with a loss. So took the draw, went into top 12 or whatever and knew I was going to get to be on the play. Yeah. And I mean, for example, like the person in 12th, like their breakers could have gone down by, you know, at least a couple percentage points. Right. Yeah. Uh, So at the time looking at it, it might look like, you know, you're you're kind of sunk if you lose because it is very difficult to determine what is going to happen to everyone's breakers. You can only make like reasonable guesses and assumptions or whatever your opponent you drew with had breakers that were 3.5% higher than you. So they likely would have been safe with the loss. Yeah. So it was probably almost certainly correct for them to play. Right. At least looking at what it looks like now, I I didn't look at the the standings the round before or whatever. It could look completely different, but yeah, I, I tried to check on melee. I don't think it's I, I couldn't figure out a way to get the standings as of a different round. But I will say, like, I think the spirit of these like cut to top twelve events and give some people a buy and any amount of things that get people to like play magic more and not take intentional draws, I think is just objectively great. And I've played in a few of these events now, and it does feel kind of weird, though, and it kind of feel there's a pretty wide range of number of players in these tournaments. And 
again, we, we haven't, we don't have enough of them to really have a good sample size here, but it feels really bad when a bunch of people with the same record end up with different rewards. So like, I think there were five people that had, were like X two one and like, you know, one or two of them get a buy and the rest don't. And then the difference between like 10th, 11th, 12th, all the way through 16th or something like that all have the same record as well. So yeah. I think getting cleaner breaks between these things is something that obviously would be more ideal. And it, it certainly doesn't feel good when a bunch of people with the same record end up with very different seedings. Well, here's the thing, though, is I thought the folks that drew in the penultimate rounds likely should have played because drawing was essentially the same thing as conceding in terms of whether or not you get the top four buy. Yeah, and I might have. I think I gave you some bad information here because I think I told you that some of them did end up drawing when they. I was wrong, so I think the top two okay. seeds ended up drawing, and that's it. Yeah, because there there are two people with two draws. Travis Travis is one who definitely played round fourteen, and I think I said that to him is like, oh, I think the people that drew probably made a mistake, but like I kind of insinuated that like he drew that round or whatever. Uh, yeah, but but he had he had played and lost, and then drew the last round, and then ended up being in the top four. So, yeah, he he started day one eight zero, right? So his breakers were just the nuts, and yeah. he was able to draw into a buy. But yeah, I I agree with you because, I mean, so there's there's two people at ten two and one in third and fourth, and then three people at ten two and one that are five six seven, and then ten and three goes from eighth down to fifteenth. So there are three people who are not making the elimination rounds just based strictly on tiebreakers. But I imagine if the folks simply did just play like I, I think that they were supposed to, then maybe that looks slightly different, you know? And then like, maybe it's even questionable whether or not you should have played in the last round. So, yeah. And I think then at that point, like even more people end up missing the top 12 with the same record. Yeah. But that's just because you flatten out a lot of like 10 to one looking records, right? It just looks like there are way more 10 and threes than there are, but. Oh, sure. Sure. It, yeah. The same number of people end up missing. I'm with you. But yeah, say this is like an old school open where it was just caught to top eight. This is how it normally was where like one person squeaks in at 10 and three and the rest of them miss. So you could also make the comparison where it's like, well, now, you know, four people are making it in where previously they would have been bubbled out. And maybe that is a net good thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, these, this stuff's always going to be messy and there's never going to be perfectly clean breaks. But I think aspirationally getting to the point where people with the same records end up with the same results is like where we should aspire for. I think so too. And I, I don't think that there is enough thought put into that. And, you know, I mean, maybe it's just kind of like a not, not diminishing returns, but it's just like, maybe it's the getting there is not worth the bandwidth that you put in. Yeah. And like, obviously, these two day events where you lock in the number of rounds ahead of time with and there's a pretty reasonable amount of variance in the number of players like that's you, you can't do the both things at the same time, right? Yeah, I agree with all that. And so. it, it also didn't look like there were many unintentional draws in the tournament, just like going through the standings and stuff. So which is shocking. Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's enough four color decks and just, you know, one ring piles in general that kind of take forever that. It, it is sort of surprising, but there was also not that much actual four color in the room. So anyway, you make you make the elimination rounds. Tell me about that. Oh, so I played against four color in the top 12, which 
was a matchup that I was, I hadn't played yet in the tournament, but I was, you know, I felt pretty good about it. It's one that you and I have practiced a little bit on the side. Um, definitely not as good as it used to be, but I, and I did not have as many sideboard cards for this matchup as I had historically, but I still felt favored. I won a pretty exciting and reasonably close game one, despite a few mistakes and missteps, I think on my own side. Game two, we play an absolutely absurdly long game where I end up with like more lands in play than I think I've ever had. Um, I had fetched every single, I, I, I fetched all four of my Dwarven Mines reasonably early in the game, like intentionally to like trade off with creatures that were attacking. And I had a plethora of resources at the time. So I felt pretty reasonable about that. And I ended up just flooding out in a really long game from a spot that I think I was pretty favored in. Then I kept a sketchy hand in game three and got absolutely maximum punished for it. My opponent played well. Um, and I think, you know, he deserved the win. And um, there were definitely, like I said, a few things that I would definitely have done differently had I got to go back and have a second crack at it. Yeah. You want to talk about the game three hand specifically? Yes, I do. So I kept a hand. Let's see if I can remember it exactly. So it was fetch land. And Dwarven mine. Yeah. Dwarven mine was the second land. No other lands. Yep. Two spell pierce. Ley line or a bitter reunion persist ley line binding. I might have the ley line binding card off. Well, you ended up telling me later that you had like binding tear asunder at some point, but not both immediately. So your opening hand had one of them, right? Yeah, it might have been a tear asunder. So whether or not to keep is the first really interesting decision point. And I think this is a hand that, like, if my opponent does not have halfling on turn one, it's like pretty well lined up and I feel pretty reasonable about it. Yeah. And you're on the draw. I am on the play. Correct. I'm on the play. Oh, you are. Uh, yeah. Cause I won game one, lost game two. Oh, game two is the flood out game. Okay. Yeah. I feel like, you know, if he does have a halfling, that's obviously like somewhat of a disaster scenario, but I feel like my, my plan a is lead on fetch land, fetch Grixis Triome. Hope he doesn't have halfling. I have spell pierce up if he has Ren and six, or if not, I can counter some other plays in those early turns. And if he does have Halfling, I discard one of the two Pierces to Bitter Reunion. And then hopefully the other Pierce can interact with a One Ring or something. So he does end up having Halfling. And then I have a really interesting decision point on his end step of which of which Triumph to fetch. Yeah, because now that the Pierces are dead, you actually need blue mana. And the Triumphs in the deck are uh, Naya and Grixis. Correct. So... I end up choosing to fetch Naya Triome. And the idea here is if I draw, it, it opens me up to drawing Renin Six, right? So obviously, like somewhat of the disaster scenario if I get Grixis is Renin Six is no longer an out to get me to more fetch lands and more colored mana. Typically, your best untapped land on turn two is going to be Steam Vent. So you want to really have Naya plus Steam Vent. So I end up fetching the Nile land and I end up not drawing a land on turn two. So I have to play Dwarven Mine. Turn three, I rip Archon. So I get to go Bitter Reunion, discard Archon, which has now puts me in a pretty good shape because I have the Persist in my hand. Yeah, but you already, I think correctly so, made the move to pivot away from the Grixis Triumph to the Nile one. So you don't actually have black mana though. Correct. So now I'm in a spot where I need to top deck a fetch land or a black source to cast persist 
and I pre I proceed to draw mountain and dwarven mine over the course of the next three <laughs> turns and just die. Yeah, which is pretty unlikely, but yeah, yeah. I mean it happens. I, I I think I told you about the, a bunch about this after. Like I, I don't I, I think the way that I fetched was correct given the context. I think the keep itself is pretty debatable, and you could if you know somebody was next to me and whispered mulligan to me right as I was about to keep. I I, I you know I could have gone either way. I think it's a really really close hand. And then obviously the decisions that I made got absolutely maximum punished, whether it was him having the halfling or the sequencing and ordering of the lands and cards that I drew. Uh, I guess it's also kind of worth noting that your opponent was playing four preordains, which... Yes, makes the spell pierces quite a bit better. Yeah, they are are very live, right? Normally it's like, uh, I just kind of want to draw one, you know, and that's it. But against your opponent's deck specifically, I think the second copy is pretty good. Yep. So, like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, it was obviously relatively fr- frustrating to um, have things play out the way that they did, uh, but I had a good laugh about it, and um, my opponent played well and um, definitely deserved the win. Cool. Yeah, you you explained the situation to me, and it's just like fascinating because I could see myself being in that exact situation, and then also having that feeling of just everything is kind of going to shit. And you don't know if it's just because of, you know, how the cards came out or is this something that maybe I should have been able to play around like different decisions. Like maybe you should have mulliganed. Maybe, uh, I mean, this is just one of the many reasons why I harp on like, well, maybe three Dwarven Mine is correct or like maybe 25 land with four Dwarven Mine is correct so that you're not in the scenario where dwarven mine is your second land drop because it's often just like pretty devastating when when those things come up to even add more irony to that like game two the fourth dwarven mine i fetched and got quite a bit of value off of and then i lost because i flooded out pretty hard yeah exactly so right so it's important not to get too results oriented about these things right the amount of sample size who would actually need to make really good decisions here is so significant no i know and like the the big thing is that recognizing that 25 is definitely very heavy, but then you just need ways to be able to power through those floods. Like you need more card filtering on top of it to kind of like make up for the potential of you flooding. Yeah. And I think that the direction that we are starting to go in with bitter unions and prismari commands and not cards like preordain, like upping the land count starts to make a lot more sense there. Yeah, I think so too. So uh, my my Sunday event was or my Sunday deck list was like a little bit different than yours. I had, I don't know, I was just becoming like increasingly more and more skeptical of just Spell Pierce's role in general, both against like the top decks, but also in modern when it's like a, a pretty wide open format and when there's a bunch of randomness around and I was looking for alternatives and I was just like, oh, I'm fine playing with like two, but if I had something else, that would be cool. And there are some blue red lists that are just playing like actual counter spell, which is uh, probably impossible with the actual five color list. There uh, is stuff like reprieve, which I have tried many times. And it's one of those things where it's like, I'll add it back into a league, just kind of like on a whim and immediately run into a bunch of different reasons why it is not very good. And just be like, yep. Okay. I don't know why I even tried that again. Uh, We've learned this lesson like seven times already. Uh, change the equation is one that you kind of move back to in your sideboard and 
I'm I'm down with that, especially after playing with it. It it was quite good, but I don't think it is exactly a main deck card. And then I don't know if uh, it was just like me looking through Austin's battle box or or what, but I, I saw a mana leak and I was like, yo, give me two of those. Yeah, and I think mana leak's a card that pre the printing of reprieve was something that got played a non-zero amount in creativity and something that you know i've liked historically in the past but not a place we've gotten back to recently and i'm totally with you on i think the spell pierce stock in general is pretty low right now which is kind of surprising given where we were at reacting to the one ring initially but i think enough of the format has adapted to it maybe not being super well positioned right now yeah i mean i (laughs) i played against Obosh in the North Carolina tournament and in the Sunday event. So that's two Oboshes in as many weekends. And both of them had plenty of Bone Crusher Giants. One of my scam opponents had Bone Crusher Giants that they played in at least two of the games, which I don't know how many they were playing, but it certainly seemed like more than one, you know. Uh, but you know, maybe it was just one copy. I don't know. But yeah, like there people are doing a lot of things to be able to kind of like beat up on the ring and the ring is just not everywhere at the moment yeah and i i think also like a lot of people have gotten used to just playing around spell pierce as a card so one i think you're going to get a pretty good amount of value of people just respecting it even when you don't have it and then mana leak also kind of plays into that a little bit of like people are going to try to sequence their spells in a way where they have two mana up to pay for spell pierce There are two specific scenarios I can remember where my opponent played a spell with two mana open and I mana leaked it and they were just kind of like, huh. (laughs) I love it. And even outside of that, that was an added bonus, right? That was like the, the, I got you factor, but didn't necessarily factor into my decision to like play the card. I just legitimately, legitimately thought it was probably pretty good and pretty well positioned. And uh, specifically thinking about it in terms of like the scam matchup, I I want some amount of interaction for them. Like stack interaction is not ideal necessarily, but if it's like a two mana thing that is basically a hard counter spell, playing a couple copies of that is not that bad, uh, especially if it gets like creatures and non-creature things alike. And so, you know, change the equation does that to some degree where it can hit like, Bowmaster Fable Blood Moon or whatever, but is not that good against like the rest of the field as a whole. So I think it is just better served as a sideboard card. But like Malik was was just like pretty solid against scam in general. It was like solid against everyone else. And my main problem with things like Spell Pierce is that people will try and play around it and are able to because overall like mana curves are pretty low. You know, you're trying to resolve a Ren and Six. Well, it just means you wait a couple turns and that's probably doable. Whereas Mana Leak, it's it's harder to wait out. They don't necessarily play around it. It does actually interact with, you know, creatures and whatnot. And I can't think of a, a certain a specific time where it was like actually dead, uh, which basically has not happened to me in any tournament where I've had Mana Leak in my deck. Like this might have been the best performing Mana Leaks for me of all time. And this is as someone who has won like tens of thousands of dollars with like Cobblade and Delver and stuff, you know. Yeah, that's that's high praise from your side. And Cobblade, for whatever it's worth, also a deck that had Spell Pierce and Mana Leak in it. Well, not my list, but, you know. Fair. Uh, I I did the thing that was, in hindsight, pretty bad, but I, I still won a lot with, which was playing Black Discard over Spell Pierce and then playing, like, two Mana Leaks. Sure. 
because I just had a lot of issues with, you know, those cards being dead or like my opponents playing creatures or whatever, you know, and I was just like, I just don't want to deal with this. And I think the real way to to go about things was uh, just like play better and don't be lazy. But I was like, I'll just Inquisition them instead. It'll be fine. Yeah. And I played straight blue white for that entire season and beat up on quite a bit of black versions. So thank you. I appreciate that. No, you're welcome. You are. You're definitely very yeah. welcome. Yeah. Uh, but I think overall back to like the overall theme of this modern event and like how you and I got to like some of this, these mana link decisions and the spell pierces in general is like, I think the format's still continuing to get faster and like finding ways to interact with your opponent in meaningful ways on the early turns of the game. is like more demanding now than ever that that's probably a direction that I would try to look to no matter what decks we were playing is like, the how can we meaningfully interact on these early turns and try to lower the curve of basically every deck yeah and i i think that that is something that not just creativity needs to pay attention to but probably everyone as a whole because like this was just a good weekend for hammer in general also and i think that hammer absolutely punishes people who are not trying to do like that exact same sort of thing and obviously not saying that like mana leak solves that or anything but just Things of that nature, trying to make sure that you are able to interact on the first few turns and maybe that constitutes like a return to force of vigor or something from some of the slower decks out there. I mean, uh, I think that that stuff is important. Yeah, and I think it's a trend I would expect to see continue. I know that the RCQ season that's, I don't know if it's started already or about to start is going to be modern. And I think that the field that we played against at this SCG is like, probably a pretty reasonable representation of what I would expect at the average RCQ, which is like a yes. little bit more all over the place and a little bit less concentrated than the average Moto Challenge or Premier event. I just clicked on modern RCQs and yeah, like there are there are some in September for me. So it's it's happening. It's underway. Are you planning on dabbling? Uh, I should. I mean, okay, so... Let's let's talk about this real quick. Uh, I think we have soft locked in going to Atlanta and playing some LCQs, assuming that things work out. Yeah. So my, my wife will be 37, somewhat 37-ish weeks pregnant at that point. So I will not be able to firm lock that in until we get very close to that event. Right. And it's just like, you know, your plane is boarding and it's just like, you know, do you feel like you might go into labor soon? Because if not, I'm leaving, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, assuming that, you know, all of the doctor's appointments leading up to this, you know, suggest and imply that that is a safe and reasonable thing to do. I, I think the timing of that actually will work out quite well. And it is something I'm Atlanta is a, there's a ton of flights. It's easy to get to. It's easy to get back to in, a, in an emergency if I need to. So yeah, I'm very interested in doing that. The unfortunate part of that is I, I think that's pioneer. It is. So it means we have to go back in that direction, which is less exciting than modern. But yeah, I would like to soft lock in Atlanta. Yeah, so we're we're doing that. Uh, also on the horizon, I have Vegas and Dallas. And then I feel like there's maybe something else too, but... Yeah, and Vegas is sealed deck. So you're going to have to learn some limited. And I'm certainly open to exploring and dabbling in the new limited format in the interest of that. And no, then... That's good. I, I would like to play arena on my phone while I'm doing other things and accumulate some wild cards. So yeah, down for that. And then you might need some wild cards because I think the Dallas oh. has been announced. Oh yeah. Is, 
a combination of modern and standard. Correct. So it is. it looks like it is two 10Ks. And I'm hoping that the structure is that you do the Swiss on one day and you play the top eight of, of the one in the morning. And then if you like win that one, maybe you get some buys into the other one. And then we could do a little back-to-back action again. Kick yeah. Old school. So does this put your back-to-back record and being the only person to do that at, at stake? I, th- I think it has to. I don't know. It, like, I feel like people are going to say that, but I also think it is much different when the opens were like 700 people compared to like 300, you know? I don't disagree, but I think that's a little bit of semantics. I'm just saying, when I did it, it was not that easy. I, I don't think it's that easy even at this one. So we'll just have to go and play well and maybe block some people out. I, I will say that if someone manages to do it, then they they have you know likely done some very good things, likely made a lot of good decisions. I don't really like saying the word deserve or whatever, but it's you know it's like a well earned accomplishment or whatever. Whether or not it's like the the same thing as what I did, I I don't know, you know. But like there there have also been opens where or like SCG cons where the top eight was like, you know, Brad, Nathan Stoyer, whatever. And it's just like, okay, well maybe those tournaments are harder than the ones that I played in. Right. So if you are able to back to back in a field like that, okay. You know, then, then yes, it is definitely the same as what I did. If not better. Yeah. I don't, So I'm, I'm willing to be honest about it, you know? Sure. And I, I think us going in, you know, having the intention of trying to box some people up, by maybe getting our fair share and a piece of it is uh, maybe a good strategy. So, yeah, so we got some things on the rise. And I when when you were like, oh, you're gonna need those wild cards, I was like, oh no, don't tell me there's like some alchemy arena qualifier or something, because I am definitely <laughs> I'm actually kind of liking magic right now. And I, I feel like subjecting myself to that for like a week or two is just gonna I'm just gonna kill it. Yeah. It's interesting. You and I were talking after the event, like the world championships is coming up at in Vegas. It's standard and I would very much love a reason or an excuse to dabble in standard leading up to the world championships just to like educate myself on the format and make watching more interesting and appealing or care about it after. And I guess this SCG Dallas makes me care about standard like maybe a little bit more than I would have otherwise, but I'm having a really hard time kind of engaging with that despite trying to twist my own arm into doing it. Yeah, who knows? I mean, maybe the standard format ends up being kind of cool. And then it just kind of like does that for you. But also Dallas is like a month after Vegas. So there's still going to be plenty of time for like the format to mature and whatnot. Yeah. A month in a format that gets played as much on arena and magic online as standard is like a century. So yeah. Okay. There is a SCG event in Pittsburgh, November 10th. And then the RC in Atlanta, December 15th. And that is what I have on my calendar currently. Okay. Along with some other stuff. There's like an MXP in Portland in October, which I don't think I'll go to. But, you know, it's it's on the calendar just in case. Yeah, we can reserve it. But I guess the point is we have a whole bunch of different tournaments in a whole bunch of different formats. No two tournaments, the same format. True. I guess outside of modern, if we can, you know, play some RCQs here and there. Well, I think that uh, either way, creativity is a pretty good call for rcqs because again that is just one of the situations where you cannot accurately predict a metagame i mean there are some scenarios where maybe your store has kind of like a local hero or whatever and they have a massive influence you know that 
them and their five friends are all going to be playing, you know, deck X or whatever. But outside of things like that, I would very much imagine that the fields are just going to be pretty wide open, hard to predict. And at that point, having something like creativity as your deck of choice is uh, going to serve you pretty well. But I should also note that there are a lot of other things that kind of like fall under that umbrella, like four color is one of them. I think Amulet is there. Uh, Gruel Valakut is is pretty decent also. And then there's also just things like playing Scam in general, you know? I think Modern's in a reasonable place. I don't love Scam being the best deck, and we've talked about that a bunch, and I'm not going to drain that one. But um, my advice for most folks would be, I think it, pick a deck and just play it for the whole season. I think that like, most of the top decks have quite a bit of play and wiggle room with how they sideboard and the sideboard slots that if you want to tweak and tune and lean in different directions to beat different matchups, a lot of them have the tools to do that. And I think like knowing how and when to do that is probably more important than the difference between the best deck and the fifth best deck. Very true. Uh, also, it might be worth noting that the time to dust off Tron may be approaching. Which is not exciting, but probably a true statement i'll do it i don't care i've i've tron landed in the past you know i was i was casting gifts on given with yeah him. i was gonna say i've played a lot of tron too but it was usually blue or white <laughs> but hey you know how, how much different is gifts on given than the one ring really um you're getting me nostalgic it's not bad and honestly dude playing with the ring was kind of fun you should try it I do. I have purchased them. So I, it is something that I foresee in my shorter term future. I, I have enjoyed playing Mono Green and Pioneer quite a bit more than I expected I would. And while I don't love the impact that Karn has on formats and decks in general, it is enjoyable to play and be on that side of it. Yeah, it's just a, it's a different sort of thing, right? You And you just have to buy into that wholesale. Yeah. Right. Creativity going forward. I mean, we, we kind of talked about a lot of this stuff. I think Teferi is still on the outs. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And I know it's like somewhat controversial and not a direction a lot of other people are going and it might not make sense on the surface, but I you, you couldn't get me to register a Teferi in my deck tomorrow. Cool. Uh, I, I think overall, there are certain conceits with creativity where uh, even... I don't know, just like looking at the different lists online, you can see where people kind of like diverge on these things. I mean, the, the first one is your your mana base needs all mountains to facilitate Dwarven Mine, which people find it pretty hard to get away from that, right? It's it's one of the stronger parts about the deck overall and certainly has its downsides, but it is kind of what you need to do. And occasionally you see like a straight red black list that has a swamp or a straight blue red list that has an island. But for the most part, all of your lands are mountains. And that is just a necessity. One of the other things with creativity is like the idea that Archon of Cruelty is just the best thing, mostly due to versatility. And honestly, I think that that's both up in the air and also doesn't necessarily have to be your only thing. Like you can diversify a little bit potentially if you think the field is going to be kind of weird or you're doing things like playing four persist i found that only having four archons like doesn't doesn't feel that good like you need some other big thing to draw into in discord yeah you had me dusting off the unmarked graves too so (laughs) 
Yeah, um, that one. That one's less good. I would rather just have a random thing to draw into and discard. I think, but I, I was there at one point. Yeah, I think persist itself as a card was. I'm not really sure exactly where I'm at with it or how I feel about it. But the cards that enable persist, like certainly overperformed for me and I think us this weekend. Whether it be Bitter Reunion or Prismari Command, and they're just really scrappy cards and. They don't line up super well against exactly Bowmaster, but I think outside of that, like they both really overperformed and surprised me. I think Prismari Command does, though. You know, yeah. obviously, obviously, it doesn't give you the full-on versatility. Where, yeah, maybe there are situations where you'd prefer to do the the rummaging thing or the looting thing, I guess. But even if it's just like kill your Bowmaster, make a treasure that gives you a lot of leeway two different ways where now maybe you're free to activate like the second chapter on fable or play a bitter union or whatever. And then the treasure is just oddly kind of nuts because a lot of decks can't really interact with it. So it gives you sort of like this fail safe way to creativity for one. And for me, it also like allowed me to potentially creativity for one on turn four and the treasure allowed me to activate bitter reunion for haste, which is something I did a surprising amount. Yeah, or that. And that is, let me tell you, lights out. If a lot of decks can beat one Archon Trigger, but not many can beat two. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of like the maybe both simultaneously like overrated and underrated part of Bitter Reunion, where it does seem win more on the face, but in actuality, it just isn't. It is, it's actually just win in a lot of scenarios when you would have otherwise lost, honestly. Yeah, it was like that card in general, if there's like a single card that I think back on this tournament for me, like overperforming, it's that whether it's, you know, giving a dwarf token haste to attack down a Teferi on one or a planeswalker or giving a flip fable haste to crank out some copies on end of turn and then untap and do it again. Like there were multiple times where I did things with it that were not necessarily the plan a of giving your archons haste that, you know, were the difference makers in games. Right, and the opportunity cost for putting it in your deck is pretty low when you're sort of already looking for this filtering effect anyway. And that's even outside of having the Persist Engine too. Yeah, so outside of how embarrassing it was in round one, game one against Scam, um, from that point forward, it was fantastic for me. Well, yeah, but I mean, that is a game where you got double griefed and they chose to leave you with that card presumably because they knew they had Bowmaster up on two, you know, like yeah. uh, you, you basically got mind twisted on turn one and you're like, Oh, my bitter reunion didn't save me. But it's like, what, what would have, you know, it's totally fair. It it's ain't just, bitter reunions fault. It's just not a feeling I'm going to forget very soon. It was certainly insult injury. Yes. Yes. Actually. Okay. So uh, one of the other main conceits is leyline binding. And I think that, this is pretty consistent through the vast majority of lists outside of the very specific edge cases where you're like straight blue red or straight red black is that like ley line binding is this thing that you should be doing and should be building your deck around. And I mostly agree with that, but like I think that the other successful lists, while we can maybe poke a lot of different holes in them, for why they are not the best version, it does go to show that you don't necessarily need this card to be competitive. Yeah, I, I mean, the cost is non-zero. 
but I think one of the tips I gave you and one of the things that I feel like I do quite a bit more than the average other creativity player that I watch is I really aggressively try to get find ways to fetch triumphs on the early turns of the game. And I really try to avoid having to fetch shock lands to cast spells that don't have a significant impact on the game because they lead to very awkward situations later down the road. So um, the sequence of try land, turn two, fetch a second try land and play a leyline binding is just like the dream. Yes, but in in most scenarios, like any piece of one man interaction is going to accomplish something similar on the early, early turns, it, right? Exactly, which is why I think Spell Pierce was appealing for a long time, but is starting to fall out of favor for this reason. It's why Lightning Bolt's amazing. It's why cards like Flame Slash and Chain to the Rocks, I think, have a lot of merits in this slot. Because they allow you to do this. I did play a Chain to the Rocks, and it was exactly fine. Yeah, and like obviously it's less than ideal, right? The fifth Lightning Bolt is going to be, you know, can it be Unholy Heat? Should it be Flame Slash? Could it be Chain to the Rocks? Whatever. I do want to take a minute and just like talk about preordain in these spots as a card that i've tried quite a bit and don't like very much i think that like any amount of time you're forced to fetch an untapped blue land on one of the earlier turns in order to cast preordain to find something like the cost of doing that is so much more than just the life you're paying to shock yourself it's like having to fetch that land and use it to play something that's not interactive is a really big problem I think when you're doing that and you also have spell pierces in your deck, that cost is exacerbated. And I think that the few slots that you do have available to make a card selection or card advantage card, like it being something that is more two for one-y, whether that's through rummaging or card selection or something that can like net you more tangible pieces of cardboard, I think is more important. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all that. And I think the vast majority of that carries over to the idea of preordain in four color Omnath as well. Yeah. So there are just better ways to kind of like, you know, smooth out your draws and whatnot that don't involve always having to like fetch shock, you know, play this card that gives up, gives you like very little upside. And I I mean, in, in like the straight blue red lists preordain is, certainly more defensible because you're just, you have four steam vents, you know, and like that is basically what you're trying to do at all times is like fetch more steam vents. But in five color specifically, it is, it is felt very heavily and I I don't like it. Yeah. I think like where it actually ends up shining is like once you have four lands and beyond. And I think in those spots, there's probably better cards that you can be playing in those slots. And I think, a lot of what I want to be doing is like getting a little bit more powerful cards in my deck and being able to like up my land count and preordain is kind of pushing us into the opposite direction. Yeah. And for as much as this deck can struggle when, you know, your, your second land is forcefully ET being tapped, whether it's Dwarven mine or you have to fetch the second triome to fix your mana. Anytime you have to kind of like take time off, to cast preordain in order to dig for your third land is also just very devastating. So I don't know. I like preordain with 24 land is pretty reasonable in my mind, uh, assuming that preordain itself like played out well in the deck, but I don't think that it does. And then when you go down to as, as far as like 22 land, it just becomes kind of disastrous, honestly. 
Yeah, it gets really sketchy. It makes your opening hands really difficult decisions. It puts you in a lot of weird spots. It also is really hard in this deck because almost all of the fetchable lands are kind of fixed. Like you can, the fourth Dwarven Mine, the second Steam Vents are things you can debate, but like every land you're you're cutting is a fetch land, which the cost of that in a five color deck is a lot higher than others. So it's not like you're just playing Murktide where you're cutting a land. Yeah, because you're you're effectively cutting a source off of all of your other colors and games where you happen to draw a Ren 6 and don't draw a fetch land, uh, the Ren 6 effectively does nothing. You know? Yeah. And so like the people that are playing Preordain in their deck with Teferi and Spell Pierce as well, like I just don't get it. I think that like puts way too much tax on your blue mana to begin with. It already, I, I think the impacts it has on the deck are pr- pretty bad. Yes, I agree with that. So uh, overall... I, I do like Leyline Binding, and that is basically where I would want to start with all of my creativity lists because I, I just think that that card, unlike things like Spellpierce and Teferi, has remained very good throughout the entire time that it has been legal and was also just one of the few cards that I don't think I ever sideboarded out. Yeah, I don't like rhinos is like the only matchup where it starts to like kind of get a little bit sketchy yeah but even then i mean it depends on how many cards you're bringing in right but it's like the the bolts are easier cuts than the bindings are too right yep Yep. and you still maybe keep in like a couple at the very least to tag a random rhino and some of the lists have murktide in it still so never bad and i think binding's good against you too so like binding to fight other people's bindings is a good place to be i think Leyline Binding is probably one of the reasons to play a deck like Creativity. Yeah, so that is sort of going to be driving which version I play going forward. I did my due diligence. I tried the other stuff. They all look cool. I certainly love the idea of like preordained counterspell, expressive iteration, force of negation in a Creativity deck, but that deck just creates a whole other set of issues and doesn't necessarily solve the major problems, you know, but it's like, Oh, this feels so good. And then you, you just lose all the time. So yeah. on paper, uh, it looks great though. Yes. Yeah. One of the other things is just like counter spells as interaction in general. And I, I think that this is playing out a lot in uh, maybe not so much the challenges, but like definitely a lot of the other creativity lists that I saw this weekend maybe it was just the ones in our tournaments that i looked at where they're just playing like a bunch of reprieves and spell pierces and i don't know i feel like every time i played i was less happy having those cards as my interaction and i just want to go like lower and lower like certainly you want some in some matchups you know like any any deck that is trying to cast like a four mana sorcery speed thing or like you know, a Tron enabled seven mana thing. It's like you want something to be able to stop that stuff, right? But it doesn't necessarily have to be counter magic either. You could do the the red black thing and have Thoughtseize be kind of your answer for stuff. Yeah, I think this is a theme we're not just seeing with creativity, but also the other blue decks in the format of like interacting on the stack is less appealing right now than it has been historically in modern. And I think that's a little bit of this, the 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 format getting faster that, that we're talking about. So whether it's cards I can play proactively like Thoughtseize or if it's something that interacts with the board, that's actually the most ideal thing. And then the last 
thing that crosses my mind when I'm wondering how to build creativity is just how how deep do we go on this persist package? And that could be, you know, zero to four, any number of which I think is defensible depending on what your goals are, who is giving you the most problems, like what decks you think are going to show up and everything. And I think that that is just going to be a thing that changes week to week. You know, it depends too much on uh, who you're trying to fight, who you expect to actually show up in big numbers and kind of what you want your deck to look like. I think that I, that's the biggest question to figure out. And I have actually no idea if I was to register for a tournament tomorrow, how many would be in my deck. I think the answer is probably somewhere between one and two, but um, it's definitely a card that I could see the best list maybe leaning more into. And if somebody really smart played a bunch of games and came and said, hey, I have this version that leans heavier into it and it's great, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I I was like kind of happy that you played with two because it meant that we could get a lot of data on that because most of the time I was playing with one and then the times I played with two, it was like very inconclusive. And I feel like if anyone ever showed me a list with three and they were pretty confident about it, that I would be very skeptical of them only having four targets for it. You know, I would fully expect there be something that either dug them very deep, like did a lot of like looting or I don't know, some sort of milling, you know, shadow prophecy goes pretty deep and puts things in the graveyard too. So I, I would expect something along those lines, but I feel like the best recipe for that sort of thing has not necessarily been found or conceived of quite yet and i do think that overall having persist as a backup plan as a cheaper thing like cheaper way to get archon into play and i don't know just make it so you're not reliant on like casting creativity on a one one a lot of the time or uh waiting until like turn five or something it's like persist has a ton of upsides and then you also then presumably have the mana left over to activate bitter reunion and really just go a lot faster than most creativity decks normally can. So I think that there is a ton of upside here. It's just a matter of how much can we shoehorn into the deck and still have it be somewhat consistent. Yeah. I think the key is to not to make sure that you're playing enough of the enablers for it. And I think if there are strong reasons to play persist right now that I can think of, it's that Prismari Command, Bitter Reunion, these cards overperformed and seemed to, you know, be more powerful and better than expected. And the second one is I think Persist is particularly good against a lot of the blue decks, whether it's Murktide or Rhinos, where they're trying to interact with you with cards like Spell Pierce or Flusterstorm or Counter Spells. And like you can play Persist and other spells in the same turn. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, just uh, Persist in general is just so cheap like there there are just turns where it's like oh well, maybe you can like cast bitter reunion as a last ditch effort to maybe dig up a persist and then play that to hold on for another turn and like previous iterations of the deck were just drawing dead in those scenarios you know it's like you just have to like look at the board and be like oh yeah i'm uh, i have no outs like i just concede so i i do think that it adds a lot to the deck and i do really like it and i would love to find a way to make it more consistent to the point where i don't know i was thinking about like Faithless Looting, which is a card that is very clearly banned, but one that I am obviously very fond of and stuff and started fantasizing about like, oh, we could like looting away some like lingering souls and smiting helixes and archons and stuff. And it's just like, oh, how good would that be? You know, don't get me going. I think another just like trap I think people get caught up in is 
other discard outlets like that would be amazing. Don't over index on how reliable Fable is as a discard outlet. It's just, it's not a reliable enough enabler. So like, I think when counting how many ways do we have the discard, I don't find Fable to be that reliable. Everybody fights it very aggressively. They're going to counter it. They're going to make you discard it. It's not a card that is enough of a persistent enabler. So I, I think really leaning into these other ones is important if that's a direction you're going to go in. Yeah, and also, I mean, to, to kind of hammer that point home, the games where Fable sticks around are often you are just cruising on easy mode for a yep. lot of different reasons. So Not the games you need help, right? Nope, not really. Prismari Command was kind of a surprise all-star for me, even though I didn't have many artifact targets to blow up or anything, but it was, again, nice just having like an instant speed card that you could hold up. The treasure token was nice. The rummaging was nice, especially with the persist sort of stuff. And I think that, you know, had had I played my tournament to completion or perhaps even like played this in the main event, given the amount of hammer that was there and also doing well, it would have been like a, a surprise, a uh, little bonus to have access to in the deck too. So I like that. Yeah, it was a card that I moved away from specifically when Hammer stopped being popular because I was like, well, if Shatter's not good, Prismari, that's the best mode on Prismari Command, so I should go in a different direction. But I, I think the games where it particularly surprised me and overperformed were the ones where you didn't actually need that, right? Just rummage and make a treasure or shock is is good enough, and that's surprising to hear. Yeah, it definitely surprised me. I was not expecting much from that card, and it ended up being one of my favorite cards. And I was, I was really wanted a third copy, actually. So definitely did not expect that coming out of the weekend, unless something did happen where I played against Hammer like a third of my rounds or something, which I didn't. And it was still great. So yep, instants are good. Yes, uh, definitely true. Also, I mean that one has red in the casting cost, so it's not quite as difficult or taxing as trying to play like a Teferi Time Raveler would be normally. So yeah, that's, it costs that's, blue colorless, colorless basically, right? Yeah, because all of your lands have for red. Yeah. So yeah, definitely a, a good point there too, and a strike in its favor. So uh, overall, my my first outing with creativity, despite not winning the tournament or even winning any money outright at all. Like I consider it a pretty resounding success because I clearly still had some kinks to work out. Like I still made some mistakes and went on kind of like this weirdo autopilot that should be reserved for other decks that are not this deck where I just did some silly things that would maybe be good in Omnath, but were like not good with specifically how the games were going to play out with my deck, you know, or is like, Oh, I just like loot away a big expensive card against a control deck when I know from actually testing leading up to the event that like, Oh, this is a matchup where we just go pretty long. and I just start casting archons, you know, eight mana archons pretty good. I mean, it's not, but like that is just what you do and it eventually ends with you winning the game. So yeah, it was, it was not a great showing by me. And then I don't know. There are just some other things with like my sideboard was not perfect. I was trying some stuff. I was trying like some ley line of the voids. And I think that that led me down a uh, kind of a dark path in one of the rounds too, or maybe I, I, I don't know. I think my end like kind of theory with how that match played out was like, I think I've only, only should have brought in two of them. And I brought in three, if that makes sense. It, it makes a little bit more sense than three. I'll say. Yeah. But you know, whatever I, I, think you could also very strongly argue for zero but 
whatever. I, I feel like once I iron out those kinks, uh, RCQ invite is mine. It will be mine. I like to hear it. So if there's an RCQ tomorrow, you're playing creativity? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And I, I feel like, so A, first of all, you need to take my Merktide regions away from me. And by by that, I mean, you kind of did because the Merktides I think somebody I played, else took them already, yeah. Yeah, the Merktides I played with were yours because Mason Clark still has mine. So yeah. uh, well, also that that is completely fine. I'm just giving maybe that, but maybe Mason stealing your legacy deck was actually trying to help you for this by preventing you from playing them. Yeah, but it turns out I have a friend who owns too many mythic rares for his own good. So anyway, it, honestly, it wasn't even Murktide's fault. I think it was more uh, Dragon's Rage Channeler's fault. Yeah, just I would being, buy that. Uh, just being a little guy, you know, little three three. Just not being super high impact in this format of high impact stuff. But yeah, don't let me do that. If I try and tell you that Omnath is good and cool, I I better have a very fancy list or something because there's basically no reason why I should want to play Omnath instead of creativity. And then, I don't know, the only other thing I could see myself kind of like going a little wild with and trying to play is Tron, which should be allowed especially because I would have to acquire so many random Astron cards in order to have a playable deck. So if I do all that work, you know, I really mean it. I would accept Tron. Yeah. Dude, don't let me play Murktide. That like, that's the deck we give Josh Joe. All right. <laughs> no, re realistically, him. realistically, I should like give him Omnath or something. Yeah. Know. If you want to get an early lunch, it's a good strategy. Yeah. But yeah, creativity is good. A at least specifically in these tournaments. I think that if, it was a little bit different. Like if I was playing a pro tour or something, you know, I would have to think about this a lot more, but, uh, for RCQ type of stuff, creativity rocks. Love to hear it. So, I mean, you, you played some RCQs with creativity, right? No. Okay. It was like the random ones that you were showing up to and like getting beat. Those were just all pioneer. Yeah. Okay. And Merc Tide. See, you could have warned me. <laughs> Not that I would have listened, to be fair, but well, let's do it, man. Let's let's just play in a couple, get it out of the way, qualify with creativity, be Archon Bros, and then, you know, if we happen to qualify from like top of wearing an SCG thing or whatever, that's cool too. Didn't need it, but I'm in. I'll look them up. All right, let's do it. Let's try and hold each other accountable and Maybe our, you know, listeners and Discord members can do the same. I like it. Game. Good luck.